Welcome to the Cancer Care Connect workshop. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. During the workshop, you will hear from our panel of expert speakers. We will allow time for questions and comments following the presentation. Instructions will be given at that time. If anyone should require assistance during the workshop, please press star then zero on your touchtone telephone. As a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. I would like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Mesner, Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead. Well, thank you so much, uh, Crystal, and I too would like to welcome everyone to today's program, Progress in the Treatment of Oral and Head and Neck Cancer. And today's program is a collaborative effort between cancer um, and it really is because of your interest in the program and the collaboration that we have so many of you on the call today. We have over 478 participants on the call today, and you come from all over the United States. Um, and from rural, urban, and suburban areas. And we also have international participants from Canada, India, and the United Kingdom, and Venezuela. So a bit of a global call as well. It's really a credit to all of you that you've chosen to spend the next hour with us. Today's program is supported by Bristol Myers Squibb and the Diana Napoli Fund. Um, we have wonderful speakers, really the best of the best. And I want to begin by introducing our first speaker. And our first speaker is Dr. Terry Day. And today is the Wendy and Keith Wellen Endowed Chair in Head and Neck Surgery. He's Professor and Director, Division of Head and Neck Oncologic Surgery and Vice Chair for Clinical Affairs, Medical University of South Carolina, Hollings Cancer Center. And Dr. Day is going to present an overview of oral and head and neck cancer, staging and diagnosing, and surgical interventions, including plastic and reconstructive surgery. It's really my great pleasure to share this program with my esteemed colleague, Dr. Day, who has really, really carved out this area enormously um, in terms of the progress in the treatment of oral and head and neck cancer. So I, I now turn this program over to Dr. Day. Thank you, Carolyn. I appreciate the opportunity to be involved again and thank Cancer Care as well as all of the sponsors and contributors for their commitment to the patients and families as well as the friends of patients who are affected by head and neck cancer. This group of distinguished panelists to follow exemplifies the variety of specialists important in the care for every patient and should provide the audience with a broad overview of the management of these cancers from various points of view. It is critical for all patients to request a multidisciplinary approach to the diagnosis, treatment, rehabilitation, and survivorship that includes specialists in chemotherapy, immunotherapy, radiation therapy, head and neck surgery, dentistry, prosthodontics, speech pathology, nursing, nutrition, reconstructive surgery, radiology, pathology, psychology, palliative care, social work, and clinical trials, among others. It's amazing how many specialists are dedicated to each and every patient. First, I will cover a brief overview of head and neck cancer along with the recent progress in the treatment of oral and head and neck cancer with surgery and reconstruction. We must begin with the definition. Oral head and neck cancer commonly refers to the cancers that affect the mouth, parts of the throat, and lined surfaces of the nose, mouth, sinuses, and voice box. Some people use the words oral or oropharyngeal to denote all head and neck cancers. But to be more specific, we now know that the word oral, which also means mouth, is an entirely different entity than oropharyngeal, which denotes the very back of the tongue, tonsils, palate, and parts of the throat. 
So oropharyngeal does not include the mouth or oral cavity. Most clinicians will refer to head and neck cancers into three main categories, the mouth, the throat, and the voice box. The medical terms for these are oral, oropharyngeal, and laryngeal. Although it is known that when grouped together, head and neck cancer represents the sixth most common cancer in the world, in the United States, one subset of these cancers is rising rapidly in incidence, and it's the cancers of the back of the tongue and the tonsil. This is now commonly found in Caucasian males, usually in their 50s, who are non-smokers. This seems to be related to a virus known as HPV in the majority of cases. In fact, many published statistics now show that these virus-related cancers of the oropharynx have surpassed cervical-related virus cancers in the United States. When added together, there are now over 55,000 head and neck squamous cell carcinomas per year in the United States, with almost all treatable and potentially curable. It is frequent that the doctors involved in treating cancers of these sites are also involved in treating other cancers of the head and neck, including the salivary glands, thyroid, melanoma, skin cancers, and sarcomas. But due to the limited amount of time today, we're going to specifically address the oral, oropharyngeal, and laryngeal cancers. We'll now move into the next major topic, which is staging and diagnosing. We will start with diagnosing, as that is important in how we stage these cancers. Those on the call should understand that the staging system for many head and neck cancers has recently changed, and this includes some major changes to how we stage the mouth versus the throat cancers and the virus versus the non-virus associated cancers. Overall, and we're going to talk about diagnosis now, in head and neck cancers, they're typically not diagnosed until a person develops symptoms or a problem develops, and they then seek a visit to a dentist or a physician. Unfortunately, there's no screening or blood test that's yet available to predict these cancers or diagnose the cancer before it's visible. So most often, there is either a spot in the mouth or throat or a swelling in the neck. If we talk about the diagnosis of the three main sites, the mouth, the throat, and the voice box, the symptoms and diagnosis differs by each site. The diagnosis of early oral cancer is typically made when a physician or dentist identifies a red or white patch in the mouth or the throat. Thus, any sore in the mouth, sore throat, change in voice, or other problems that do not resolve should be evaluated by a specialist. The oropharynx or throat is often diagnosed either when someone has a long-standing sore throat, trouble swallowing, earache, or a swelling in the neck. The voice box cancers, on the other hand, usually cause hoarseness or a change in the voice that does not go away. When these areas are found, a biopsy of the site should be performed to find out what type of growth is present. When head and neck cancers first show up as enlarged lymph nodes in the neck, a CAT scan may be scheduled to further evaluate the lymph nodes, and if it's safe, a needle biopsy can be performed on the lymph node if it's necessary. Thus, any adult with a lump in the neck should have it evaluated. Before or after the biopsy is done, patients may be scheduled for a CAT scan, MRI, a, a CAT scan with a PET scan that can look to see if the tumor is spread. In most cases, a biopsy of the tumor or the lump in the neck, which may be a lymph node, can show the type of tumor. 
the results of the biopsy and the site of the tumor often then directs the treatment recommendations. It's at this time that the patient should be referred to a multidisciplinary team of specialists that at least includes the head and neck surgeon, the radiation oncologist, and a medical oncologist. After all of the scans, examinations are done, the patient is then given a stage of the tumor, which I'll review now. The stage is usually based on the location, the size, the depth, or the number of lymph nodes in the neck. The stage is divided into three separate letters, the T, the N, and the M. T stands for tumor, or the place where the cancer started, and that's known as the primary site. N stands for the nodes, or lymph nodes, and the presence of abnormal lymph nodes in the neck that the tumor may have spread to. And M stands for metastasis, or spread of cancer beyond the head and neck. It's important for patients to understand that a new staging system is hot off the press as of January the 1st, 2018, and some doctors may not be aware of the details. If I were to summarize the basic changes, the mouth staging system now includes how deep in millimeters the tumor goes into the tongue or other parts of the mouth. The throat or oropharynx now depends on the test to determine uh, the, whether or not the tumor is associated with a virus, and this is sometimes done with a P16 marker. In addition to these changes, the pathologic stage is different and is now based on the number of lymph nodes removed and with cancer that, that may have cancer after surgery. So the entire TNM staging group is combined to give an overall stage according to the American Joint Committee on Cancer, or the AJCC. Patients can go to the National Camp Comprehensive Cancer Network, or nccn.org, to also identify the stages and the treatment options for each stage. I would like to move forward into the recent advances in the treatment of head and neck cancers. It's well understood from scientific research that each stage, site, and type of cancer can be treated in a certain way. When the oncologists begin discussing treatment and stage, it can be very confusing to the patient and family. Let me summarize the treatment in a few sentences, and then you will hear from experts later in chemotherapy, radiation oncology, and immunotherapy to provide some more valuable information in detail. In general, all head and neck cancers are treated with either surgery or radiation therapy, and the two of these comprise the curative treatment modalities, whereas chemotherapy and immunotherapy may be added to surgery, radiation, and combination th therapies that provides really some exciting changes in the most recent years. Most head and neck cancers, however, will be treated with combinations of treatment, including combinations of surgery, radiation, chemotherapy, and immunotherapy. In brief, early stage or stage one or two cancers can be cured with either surgery or radiation therapy alone without combination treatment or chemotherapy. The advanced stages, or stages three and four, often require combination treatment that can include surgery and radiation or chemo and radiation, or combinations of all three that may include immunotherapy. The good news is that cure rates are improving and the overall prognosis, especially for the HPV-associated cancers, is good. One main point for surgical treatment is that the surgeon will remove the cancer from the place it started that could be in the mouth or the throat and take clear margins around the tumor to make sure all the tumor is removed and the edges are clear. 
Also, the surgeon may remove lymph nodes from the neck, and in case the tumor has spread to the lymph nodes, remove those to identify how many lymph nodes are included with cancer. Surgery for earlier stage cancers can be performed in many cases now with minimally invasive techniques such as robotic surgery, laser treatment with magnified and three-dimensional images. Many of these procedures are performed now with same day or shorter hospital stays than they used to be. This does present good options for individuals in addition to receiving the radiation for the early stage cancers. Advances in the stage three and four head and neck surgery includes the option of having the surgery along with major reconstructive surgery that was not in, available in the past. These are called microvascular free tissue transfers, also called free flaps. And basically, this is taking a piece of tissue from another part of the body that can include skin or muscle or bone and rebuilding where the cancer was removed in the face or neck or jawbone. Not only can these techniques provide the ability to chew, eat, swallow, and talk again, but can improve the cosmetic outcomes for patients with facial deformities from these treatments. Finally, we have to mention that prosthetic eyes, ears, noses, palates, teeth, and parts of the face can now be performed by prosthodontists in patients who can't have the reconstruction. In summary, mouth, throat, and voice box cancers are diagnosed, staged, and treated differently. Multidisciplinary care is paramount in getting the right treatment and improving quality of life after treatment. It's been a privilege participating in this important teleconference. I encourage everyone to continue their efforts to improve the multidisciplinary care that improves cure and quality of life for all of our patients. Thank you. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Day. That was outstanding and just a wonderful setting the stage for the entire program today and such important messages to everybody on the call today. So thank you. Um, and our next speaker is Dr. Christoph Masikowicz. And Dr. Masikowicz is Associate Professor of Medicine, Hematology and Medical Oncology, Assistant Professor, Otolaryngology, ICANN School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, Mount Sinai Hospital. And Dr. Masikowicz is actually going to be addressing some of the updates from ASCO, but he's going to be presenting on new chemotherapy and immunotherapy options, practical tips to manage treatment side effects, pain, and discomfort, and key questions to ask in making informed treatment decisions. And ASCO is the American Society of Clinical Oncology. They just had a meeting recently, so it's wonderful to have Dr. Masikowicz being able to update us on anything that was presented at that meeting. It's now my great pleasure to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Masikowicz. Uh, thank you. Good morning. So it's a beautiful weather. I'm in New York City, so with a view on the park. So I hope that uh, all of you have a nice view and you're in the good spirit. So I want to thank you, the organizers, the speakers, patients, and obviously the families for all the support that we're getting and obviously uh, uh, when we treat our patients. And yes, I want to discuss um, the treatment uh, modalities in light of the recent conference that took place in Chicago in 2008 in June, so it's quite recent. And I'm going to be discussing uh, chemotherapy, targeted therapy, and immunotherapy. 
So in general, squamosal carcinoma of head and neck, there are a few treatment modalities in addition to the one that was mentioned, which is surgery and radiation is going to be discussed later on. And those are chemotherapy. And chemotherapy, even though this is kind of the all treatment, it's still the treatment modality that we use. And chemotherapy, the way it works, it kills the effect the rapidly dividing cells. But at the same time, because it's not very selective, obviously can hurt or can kill the surrounding cells that are healthy. So that's why patients, they develop side effects. Sometimes I tell my patient that chemotherapy is sort of like a poison, that we're trying to poison the cancer without poisoning the patient. So as a consequence, patients, they may develop some side effects. The second treatment modality that we use in head and neck cancer is targeted therapy. So targeted therapy basically works on the notion that the cancer cells are different than the healthy cells. So this targeted therapy can target the cancer and sparing the healthy cells. It's not always true, but uh, in general, those treatments are less toxic than chemotherapy, and they may be a little bit more sophisticated. And there is a, a third treatment modality called immunotherapy. And this is kind of the new thing that kind of stormed into our doors and obviously is very popular now, and I would say it's very promising. So what is immunotherapy? Immunotherapy basically is when patients, they develop infection, the human body can recognize infection as foreign, and the human body can fight with this infection, has the mechanism and ability to fight with this. When we have a cancer, unfortunately, cancer becomes invisible to our body, so our body cannot fight with this. It kind of thinks it, is, it does belong to me. So there are some treatment options that we can turn on the immune system and ask your own body to fight with the cancer. So um, it is very promising. It is very effective. At the same time, it's not really as toxic as standard chemotherapy. So it looks very promising. But at the same time as I'm discussing those three treatment modalities, I don't want you to think that one is better than the other. All of them, they have pluses and minuses, and I would say there is a time and place for each of those treatments. So I'm sure that we're going to see an expert and somebody's going to recommend one of those treatments. There is a value, and obviously it doesn't mean that all of us, we should be getting immunotherapy. So I don't want you to forget about other treatment options. And again, there are some differences from different cancers. So a treatment paradigm that we use, let's say, in melanoma lung cancer can be different that from head and neck cancer. So there are some similarities, but also there are some differences. So having this in mind, obviously, when we have those three treatment options, now the question is how we can move on, how we can make it better. So in the light of a recent ASCO conference, the main question that is being asked how to create a better cocktail, how to mix chemotherapy with immunotherapy, targeted therapy with immunotherapy, or immunotherapy with different immunotherapy. So, for example, immunotherapy plus immunotherapy looks very promising in melanoma, and we don't know if we're going to see the same thing in head and neck cancer, but it looks promising. Chemotherapy plus immunotherapy sometimes can be combined, and it looks very promising, for example, in uh, lung cancer, uh, but we're still waiting for the results of clinical trials to answer the question if this is the same paradigm that we can use in head and neck cancer. Chemotherapy plus uh, targeted therapy, this is something that we use currently in head and neck cancer. We combine the drug called Herbitax with chemotherapy. And the, the last one is a combination of immunotherapy and targeted therapy. And actually, there are some promising abstracts and the results of studies that were presented at ASCO conference. So the problem is, as we kind of think about those different cocktails, which cocktail is the best in terms of toxicity, uh, but obviously in terms of the efficacy? 
And there is a second question um, that we always ask about patient selection. Which patient should get what? Because obviously there is always a place and time for, for different treatment modalities. And those are the still not really fully answered question and obviously we want to learn. So, for example, one abstract that was presented at ASCO showed um, a combination of target therapy. There is a drug called Envima that we use in thyroid cancer, we use in liver cancer, or we live in we use in kidney cancer. It uh, was combined with immunotherapy checkpoint inhibitors called Keytruda, and it looks very promising. It looks better than immunotherapy alone. But the question is if the toxicity that was seen in this study obviously can be justified. So one option would be that the company will move on and accept the toxicity that was seen in this study. And the other question is that obviously as we're going to move forward and study this combination, maybe we should go down, go down on the doses and maybe dose reduce and test it again. So maybe with the dose reduction, it's not going to be as toxic, but it's still going to maintain the efficacy. But again, this is something that looks promising, but we still don't use it in clinical practice. And if you want to be part of this, an amazing adventure journey with those new promising cutting-edge, uh, uh, promising uh, treatment modalities, you should ask for clinical trials. And not only you can benefit from this treatment, but at the same time you can help us to give those, have those answers. The second abstract that I want to uh, discuss is a combination of immunotherapy with targeted therapy, uh, and the drug is called cetuximab or Herbitax. It was combined with immunotherapy with checkpoint inhibitors, and it looks very promising. Herbitax is the drug that we do use in head and neck cancer. It looks very promising. It is effective, and we know the side effects, and it was combined with immunotherapy, and it looks promising, but again, the same, the same problem that obviously we don't use it in clinical practice yet, but it is promising. So again, I would encourage you for our clinical trials so you can be part of this. So this is the first problem. The second problem that we have that scientists ask about the sequence, how we should give those drugs. Because as I mentioned, we have chemotherapy, we have targeted therapy, we have immunotherapy. And should I combine them together and give it in once as a cocktail of all those drugs together, or maybe I should kind of give them in sequence, and what is the best sequence? So, for example, in lung cancer, there is an observation done that if we're going to give immunotherapy, and then subsequently we're going to give chemotherapy after, the chemotherapy works better. So, as we would do the other way around. But the same question is, obviously, if we're going to see the same scenario in head and cancer, we don't know. But as of now, as of now, immunotherapy is not approved in the first-line settings, meaning that if somebody has a recurrent or metastatic disease and never received any treatment, those patients should be getting chemotherapy because immunotherapy is not approved in the settings. But at the same time, immunotherapy is approved in the second-line settings, meaning if the chemotherapy didn't work, then yes, we can give immunotherapy. So as of now, we cannot sequence giving immunotherapy first and then chemotherapy, we have to do the other way around, but it doesn't mean this is the bad approach. We're still asking those questions. So as you see, we still need your participation to kind of help us to move the, uh, the science forward. And the last thing that I wanna discuss is toxicity. So toxicity, obviously, those are the side effects that we develop as we are being treated. So obviously, I wanna discuss especially immunotherapy. So there is a new thing that we kind of observe in, uh, when we use immunotherapy. There are some, overall, I would say, that immunotherapy is very well tolerated. We don't see so much, so many side effects as we see with chemotherapy or maybe even targeted therapy. 
But there are some adverse events that actually are desirable. So what we learn that, for example, in melanoma, for patients that they develop what the disease is called or clinical observation, clinical symptoms, vitiligo, which is like a white patches on the skin, or thyroiditis, which is the inflammation of the thyroid, as a consequence of the treatment, patients that develop those side effects, they do better. The immunotherapy works better for those patients. So those are, I would say, desirable side effects. And obviously, at the same time, I want to make that comment that we as physicians, even if patients, they develop those side effects, we cannot ignore them because they can be dangerous. It can be life-threatening. So it's not like the patient can, shouldn't tell us. Patients should, and obviously we can address them. But even if we're going to address them, it doesn't mean that we're going to eliminate those side effects, that this efficacy benefit will disappear. And there are some other side effects that can obviously develop as a consequence of an immunotherapy. So one of them is diarrhea. The second one is pneumonitis, which is an inflammation of the lung when patients develop shortness of breath. So as of now, we don't have any information that those side effects are desirable as the previous ones. So at the same time, I encourage you to have a clear communication between your physicians so we can kind of select between those side effects and tell you which of them are kind of giving us some information that the, maybe you're benefiting from the treatment or maybe the benefit's going to be um, enhanced or for which of them that are not desirable. When it comes to diarrhea and pneumonitis, those are dangerous and sometimes can be life-threatening. So I would strongly encourage you, to obviously, to communicate to your physician. There are some treatment modalities such as steroids that we can give in order to eliminate them or eventually to make them better. Sometimes, when you discuss with the physician, we try to stay away from the steroids because many times we think that the steroids, what they're going to do, they're going to counteract the effectiveness of the immunotherapy because on one hand, immunotherapy is stimulating your immune system. On the other hand, the steroids are kind of suppressing, so obviously we still want to get a benefit from this treatment. But actually, there was a study done that uh, they studied those patients that developed side effects and the patients that they were giving steroids. And apparently, there is no difference in outcome between patients that they received the treatment with the steroids versus the ones that they never got them. So I would still encourage you to communicate your side effects to your physician so they can make a very uh, um, educated decision in order how to address them and what kind of treatment modalities or uh, intervention they should take in order to eliminate them or make them feel better. So this is how I would, I would summarize my talk about the, the new treatment modality. So I would say in general, I think me as a physician and for you as patients, this is an exciting moment. There are so many treatment options that are currently now in the development, uh, things that we study. And the only way as of now to get to access to them is through clinical trials. And our intention is to treat you and to help you. So obviously, I would strongly encourage you so you can be part of this. Not only you're going to benefit, but you're going to help us and other patients to move the science forward. Thank you very much. Well, thank you very much, Dr. Nicholas. That was outstanding and really wonderful and, and really also to bring the most cutting edge and most recent um, research information to everybody is so amazing. So thank you, and um, we really appreciate your being on the call. Um, our next speaker is Dr. David Rosenthal. Dr. Rosenthal is Section Chief, Head and Neck, Division of Radiation Oncology, Director, Department of Head and Neck Translational Research, Division of Radiation Oncology, Professor, Department of Head and Neck Surgery, the University of Texas MD Anderson Cancer Center. 
And Dr. Rosenthal is going to present concurrent chemotherapy and radiation treatment, communicating with your healthcare team about your quality of life concerns and pain and symptom management. It's really my great pleasure to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Rosenthal. Carolyn, thank you for the kind introduction and also the opportunity to contribute to the excellent work you do helping patients at Cancer Care. I think we discussed earlier that we've been working together for maybe 15 years or more, and it's always my pleasure to try to help contribute. Today I'm going to be speaking on two main topics. The first is the role of the radiation oncologist in head and neck cancer care, and the second is about communication with the healthcare team, in which I'm going to make a few comments about pain management. Let me start with a statement that multidisciplinary care and evaluation and evaluation for clinical trials are the key to successful treatment of head and neck cancer. So let me tell you what I mean about that. Unfortunately, sometimes we'll see a patient that might happen to only see one of the main specialists, a surgeon, radiation oncologist, or medical oncologist, and kind of rush into the type of treatment that that particular physician may offer. This may sometimes be successful, but sometimes by not getting input from the full spectrum of treatment possibilities, patients can be compromised. So the modern approach to patients with head and neck cancer is to undergo a multidisciplinary evaluation prior to treatment. So there are three main specialties. There's radiation therapy, surgery, and chemotherapy by medical oncologists. So the modern approach is for each patient to be seen by a representative of each of these three specialties, and then their case is discussed amongst those physicians at a what we call a multidisciplinary head and neck tumor conference. In this way, we assure that each patient gets individualized and most appropriate cancer care plan. And this includes evaluation for cancer clinical trials. Dr. Day will comment in more detail about this. And this is the opportunity where patients can get access to cutting-edge, new, and promising treatments that might not otherwise be available to them. So let me make a few comments about radiation therapy. Radiation therapy is a local treatment like surgery. We should contrast this to systemic therapies such as uh, chemotherapy, immunotherapy that are delivered by a medical oncologist. So patients who are treated with curative intent, which is most patients, require local therapy, and this is either going to be surgery, radiation therapy, or both. So you can think, when I say local therapy, I mean that we're treating a specific area. So let's give an example of a patient who has a tumor on the tongue. A surgeon can remove that surgically, perhaps, or a radiation oncologist could direct 
a radiation beam at that tumor. You can think of a radiation beam as uh, an invisible flashlight. So where we shine the light is where the effects and the side effects are going to be. So the importance of the multidisciplinary tumor conference and seeing patients uh, by all of the modalities is to determine which local therapy is best for that individual patient. Is it going to be surgery or radiation therapy? And this is going to depend on a variety of factors, some patient factors such as their performance status and functionality, functionality um, and also tumor factors, example, such as the size, stage, and location. And um, sometimes uh, patients may require both treatments. And if both, uh, for some tumors that are larger, they may require uh, surgery. And then typically the surgery is done first and radiation therapy is done, is done afterwards. Um, now, when it comes down to the type of radiation, there are a few choices that may be available. Uh, there are two main categories, X-ray therapy, which includes abbreviations such as IMRT, VMAT, IGRT. Uh, the, the standard grouping of that is called intensely modulated radiation therapy, or IMRT. Uh, and then the other main category that is more recently available is proton therapy. So both IMRT and proton therapy involve inverse planning, which means that the doctor plans it on CT scans. And this allows us to create a highly conformal dose cloud of radiation that hugs the tumor target with rapid fall off to the adjacent normal structures and can help decrease side effects to those structures and allow us to deliver the higher doses that we wish to optimize cure to the tumor. Now, what's different about proton therapy is that uh, there's a lower entry dose and no exit dose of the radiation. And because of this, it may help to decrease some of the collateral scatter radiation um, that is associated with uh, IMRT with x-rays and may help some patients uh, in decreasing some side effects. So this is important consideration, especially in skull-based tumors such as paranasal sinus and nasopharynx cancers. And speaking with your physician about these options will help determine what modality is best for you. Um, let me make one comment quickly about concurrent chemoradiation. Um, in the 1990s, we were not curing enough patients. Most cancers then in the head and neck were tobacco-driven. We did prospective clinical trials showing that the addition of concurrent chemotherapy to radiation therapy helped to improve local control and overall survival by about 10 to 20 percent. This came at the cost, however, of increasing side effects. It may be appropriate for some patients who had no other option, but what we've seen since then is that there's been a relative change in risk factors. Many patients have less tobacco and alcohol exposure, and the human papillomavirus, HPV, has been recognized as an etiologic agent for many uh, oropharynx cancer, now the vast majority. The HPV-driven cancers have a better prognosis, they respond better to treatment, and um, as a result of that, the cure rate is better. 
for many patients, most patients. Now, back in the 90s and the early 2000s, many of these patients were inappropriately upstaged because uh, we were trying to force them into the uh, same staging systems that we had. And that led to overtreatment and extra side effects that not all patients needed. We now that we've recognized that HPV-driven tumors, um, that the patients do better, we have developed a new staging system, and we're now investigating ways to de-intensify therapy and maintain the same overall survival with fewer side effects. I'm going to now switch to communication with the healthcare team. Um, there are many questions that I've kept a mental note of that patients sometimes wonder about, may forget to ask, or may be embarrassed to ask. One of them is to ask yourself, are you a smoker? Um, people are often embarrassed to reveal this, but patients who do smoke during their cancer treatment um, have more side effects and have more poor outcomes. So it's important to come forward with this and ask the physician, where can I get help for this? How can you help me? And there are active tobacco treatment programs available. Another question to ask is what I spoke about earlier, is am I going to be seen by all three cancer specialties, and will my case be discussed at a multidisciplinary head and neck tumor conference? Um, Another important question to ask is about side effect management and functionality outcomes. Will I be seen by a head and neck experienced speech language pathologist and a dental oncologist who will help to optimize oral and dental care, eating, chewing, swallowing, breathing, um, and speaking functions? Uh, finally, I think that it's important to ask what is the experience of the members of the healthcare team with the specific treatment of head and neck cancer? Do, do, does everybody have a track record in, in doing this, or is this something that they just do occasionally? And then, you know, again, I just want to repeat the importance of asking about what clinical trials might be available, you know, for me. And patients may also refer to clinicaltrialscancer.gov to find some answers. With respect to pain management, um, many patients may present with some tumor-related symptoms, such as a sore throat, pain or difficulty swallowing, or some ear pain. Uh, but when we go through radiation therapy, patients can develop a, a sunburn-like reaction in the mouth and throat called mucositis that can cause some pain and discomfort. So don't be shy, afraid, or bashful to talk about this. It's normal. Don't hide it. The head and neck cancer team expects it. And patients do better when their pain is controlled. So at the first sign of any discomfort, it's best to talk about it and how it's going to be managed so that if it's a night or weekend, that the patient will have some uh, treatment available and not have to suffer um, unnecessarily. So in conclusion, uh, fortunately, most patients with head and neck cancer are treated uh, with curative intent. It's important to um, work towards tobacco cessation for all patients, and the focus is on multidisciplinary care uh, so that patients can get the most appropriate individualized uh, care plan uh, for them and be evaluated for 
the most new cutting-edge cancer treatments. Uh, Carolyn, uh, thank you uh, for um, involving me again, and I look forward to hearing the remaining speakers. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Rosenthal. That was outstanding and really very informative and really um, identifying the important role of, again, the multidisciplinary team, but also the role of the radiation uh, treatment and also radiation and combined with chemotherapy. So thank you so much and just excellent presentation. Our next speaker is Dr. Douglas Peterson. Dr. Peterson is Professor of Oral Medicine, Department of Oral Health and Diagnostic Sciences, School of Dental Medicine, Chair, Program in Head and Neck Cancer and Oral Oncology, NAE Comprehensive Cancer Center, the University of Connecticut Health Center. Now, Dr. Peterson is going to be addressing guidelines for dental care, care of your mouth, teeth, and gums before and after treatment, and coping with dry mouth. It's really now my great pleasure to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Peterson. Thank you, Carolyn. It's my privilege to participate in today's cancer care workshop, and I'll be talking about guidelines for dental care. There are some very important and highly successful approaches for care uh, of your mouth that can be utilized before, during, and after completion of treatment of oral and head and neck cancer. And this is very, very important because many of the cancer treatments, if we're not careful in our prevention, can cause mouth problems. So our goal becomes to prevent or at least minimize any problems with your mouth during and in the years after this cancer treatment. I'll be summarizing some of these approaches during my presentation. There are also excellent resources, such as available through Cancer Care, for patients and their families and for the cancer team to guide the decision-making and the dental treatments for patients with head and neck cancer. Much of the decision-making about how best to take care of the mouth during and after cancer treatment is based on really the types of cancer treatment, which in turn is based on the staging and the location of cancer. This is one of the reasons why uh, screening and early detection are so important, because the earlier the diagnosis is made of cancer, the sooner the oncology team can begin treatment that is customized to treat that cancer and also minimizing any side effects, including changes in the mouth. Early detection of possible oral cancers based on screening uh, of the uh, lining tissues of the mouth, for example, the sides of the tongue and under the tongue, is very, very important, therefore, for these and many other reasons. And I'll, I'll comment again on this uh, concept and this strategy of early detection a little bit later in my presentation. There's also a very important context relative to guidelines on how best to take care of your mouth during head and neck cancer treatment and after. There are exciting and, and currently available ways to treat head and neck cancer, as we've heard from our other colleagues today. These advances include new technologies to, to focus the radiation on the cancer and drugs that are specifically focused to attack the cancer cells. These types of targeted therapies allow the oncology team to protect more of the normal tissue than we used to be able to do. And this includes protecting tissues in the mouth. So this is a good thing. So these state-of-the-art treatments can go a long way to reducing some of the mouth complications while achieving cancer cures. 
There's also some recent exciting new concepts regarding treating head and neck cancers that involve specifically the back of the tongue or the upper part of the throat or the, the pharynx. These are with cancers that are caused by a specific type of virus, a human papillomavirus. There are some current studies that are looking at reducing the amount of head and neck radiation that is needed to cure these cancers that are caused by the human papillomaviruses. And these cancers, it's very interesting, seem to respond quite well to these reduced radiation doses in many patients. And so by reducing the amount of radiation, this in turn could reduce the types of side effects in the mouth that would otherwise occur. So this is yet another new way to consider treatment of certain types of head and neck cancer if, if they're caused by the human papillomavirus. So if you're diagnosed with this kind of head and neck cancer, one that's caused by the human papillomavirus, you might discuss the possibility of a clinical trial looking at reduced radiation. And if you are eligible for this kind of trial, it could be uh, of tremendous health benefit to you, and your participation could also be a tremendous gift to future patients. So what are some of the important guidelines for dental care before, during, and after your cancer treatment? The words become important when we talk about these guidelines. We can think in terms of dental, which is actually the teeth, in relation to the mouth, which we call oral, and that includes the teeth and the gums and the lining tissues of the mouth, or mucosa, as well as the salivary glands. Head and neck radiation, whether it's given with or without chemotherapy, can cause temporary or sometimes permanent changes in the mouth tissues. And given the complexity of some of these mouth complications, it's very, very important to have a comprehensive management approach by the cancer team, including prevention of these mouth problems, if at all possible. Some of these, these complications caused by the head and neck radiation and the chemotherapy only occur in relation to the cancer treatment itself, and then, then they clear up a few weeks after the cancer treatment ends. A, a very good example of this is the sore mouth that's caused by radiation or chemotherapy, uh, the so-called mucositis. Some other complications that are caused by radiation may last for the lifetime of the patient, such as dry mouth caused by head and neck radiation, or changes in the bone that can reduce the blood supply to the bone that can result in a condition that we call osteoradionecrosis, directly caused by the radiation. Now the good news is, is that the mouth sores can be managed and the risk for dry mouth or osteoradionecrosis can be prevented or at least minimized by working with your healthcare team before, during, and after the radiation therapy. I'd like to emphasize with the sore mouth, the, the mucositis is caused by the head and neck radiation. There are a number of products to help, help the patient who's experiencing these sores prior to and during the sore mouth experience. The mouth sores can be painful, and we don't have effective ways to prevent completely the mouth sores from occurring. However, we can work with the patient to use basic non-medicated mouth rinses, such as water and salt solutions, to keep the tissues moist and clean. 
There are very effective pain medications that can be applied directly to the sore area in the mouth or given as a, by a pill or by injection. And if needed, there are medicines to fight off any infection that may be occurring in relation to the mouth sores. So the, uh, the cancer care team will be always checking for infection and if it occurs, uh, working to treat it successfully. So again, although none of these approaches of pain control and infection management are preventing the mouth sores, they really are excellent ways to minimize the impact of the mouth sores during the cancer treatment. And again, the mouth sores will go away in the few weeks after the cancer treatment ends. Now, I mentioned a few minutes ago that there can also be a condition of dry mouth that's caused by the head and neck radiation. Uh, this dry mouth can last for the lifetime of the patient, so it can last for many, many years after the radiation ends, and it, it can cause difficulties in tasting, chewing, swallowing, and, and speaking. It can also increase the risk of infection, including dental cavities which in turn, because it's infection, uh, uh, dental decay is an infection, can lead to infection in the bone that's been injured by the radiation. And so it's very, very important to try and prevent problems associated with dry mouth. Simple approaches such as sipping water or sugarless drinks often to keep the tissues moist is often very effective. Avoiding drinks with caffeine such as coffee and tea and some sodas, that's, that's a good thing. Avoid drinks with caffeine because the caffeine can dry the mouth. Don't use tobacco or alcohol. These can also dry the mouth. And avoid spicy or salty foods that may irritate the mouth when it's dry. A very important aspect of this, if someone has dry mouth for the rest of, you know, the many years after the cancer treatment ends, working with a dentist and having regular checkups, perhaps every three to six months, and using home fluoride applications that the dentist team can provide for you, prescribe for you, in order to protect the teeth from developing cavities by giving them uh, uh, exposure to high fluoride. It's also important to make sure your diet is low in sugar so, again, cavities don't form. So it is very, very important to have your mouth examined on a regular basis by the healthcare team in the months and years following completion of your cancer treatment in order to prevent any mouth problems or, if those mouth problems should occur, detect them early and manage them become they, before they become more severe. So there's a lot of information in there. Again, the key here becomes one of communicating with your healthcare team that includes your dentist. Prevention of mouth problems becomes the key. When a patient comes to us in dental practice and they're scheduled to receive head and neck radiation in a few weeks, we work very hard with the patient, the patient's family, and the rest of the cancer team to assess the uh, conditions in the mouth, if there's any uh, disease that needs to be treated, such as cavities or gum disease, uh, we will treat that, working side by side with the patient and the rest of the cancer team. This examination by the dentist in the weeks before the radiation begins is so important so that we in the dental practice can coordinate medically necessary dental care with the rest of your cancer team. And again, if a mouth problem develops, finding it early and treating it becomes very, very important. Another reason to have this ongoing communication with your 
cancer team, including the dentist. So as I, as I close, I'd like to just briefly summarize. There's a lot of information that is presented when a new diagnosis of head and neck cancer is made, and it, it can be overwhelming. It takes time for all that information to make sense. So I, I just urge patients to ask any questions they want, discuss any concerns they have with the oncology team and any concerns related to what might happen to my mouth or how can I prevent problems in my mouth from occurring. Talking that over with the dentist and the rest of the oncology team allows us to really give the best cancer care possible. And there are excellent approaches that we use in dentistry that we can incorporate into your cancer treatment, again, working in close collaboration with the rest of the team. So the communication throughout your cancer journey can make a huge difference in how not only your mouth feels, but your overall success with cancer treatment. And it's really this partnership that we emphasize through cancer care so that we can give the very, very best cancer care possible. So I'm going to end at this point and thank uh, Cancer Care and, and Carolyn for this opportunity to discuss this very, very important subject. And by working and communicating with your dentist and the rest of the team, it can have very, very positive outcomes for you as the patient, both during your cancer treatment as well as for many years thereafter. So again, thank you for your time and interest, and I'll turn the conference back to Carolyn. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Peterson. That was just so wonderful. And really, that whole message of really um, how working with your healthcare team, working in this instance, of course, with your dentist um, to get the very best care, but throughout the entire program, this is really important. So thank you so much, um, uh, Dr. Peterson. We can't imagine doing a program without you, actually. Thank you. And our next speaker is Ms. Diana Bairden. Ms. Bairden is a dietitian with the Michael E. DeBakey VA Medical Center. And um, Ms. Bearden is going to be addressing nutrition concerns and tips, and also speech and swallowing rehabilitation. It's really my pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, uh, Ms. Bearden. Carolyn, I'm excited to be part of today's presentation addressing nutritional concerns in the presence of head and neck cancer. Nutrition and hydration are essential in tolerance um, during treatment and provide you the energy to do the things you enjoy. During and after your treatment for head and neck cancer, your diet may be modified due to side effects from the cancer itself, treatment, and some of the side effects from treatment. We've heard many, of, um, many examples today of some of those side effects. But just to reiterate, some of the potential side effects include dry mouth, difficulty chewing, mouth sores, difficulty swallowing, changes in taste, um, decreased appetite, and fatigue. So during your course of treatment and recovery, your nutritional needs can increase. This is important to know. If you're not able to meet your nutritional needs your, due to your tolerance to treatment, then your treatment plan and even the course of treatment and recovery can be impacted. Um, if you aren't doing well and things aren't, aren't being tolerated, then your, your physicians and your medical team may um, skip a treatment or hold off on a treatment. So there are some things that can be impacted by you not doing well nutritionally. So reaching out to your dietitian is important. The dietitian can provide you with information on how to get your calories in, how to get your protein in, telling you what those goals are, discussing your fluid needs, um, information on how to modify your diet um, if you're having challenges um, to meet your individual needs. But 
something to remember, I hear this oftentimes from patients, um, but even if you're overweight, you can still become malnourished. This is one of the, the kind of the biggest misunderstandings today, um, I think, in healthcare. And um, nourishment is not related to our weight. Um, it's when you look at a nutritional status, we look at a lot of different components, and your dietitian will uh, potentially do a, what we call a nutrition focused physical assessment. And our body tells us a lot about how um, we're feeding it, how it's responding to what's being fed. And so, as part of your assessment, um, it's important to realize that, you know, where you are right now, weight wise, doesn't necessarily change how your course of treatment will be. So when nutritional needs are not met by the body, um, your body is hungry. It needs energy. It also needs energy because of healing. And so where it will take that energy from is your protein or your muscle. Um, and the reason for that is because these, this protein and muscle component is a much easier um, metabolized product than fat is. And so... Whenever you talk with somebody, oftentimes, who's coming in and, and they're talking about, oh, I'm overweight, I have a little bit of weight I can lose. No, 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 no. We don't want that to happen um, because the weight you're going to lose is not going to be fat as as what we oftentimes think of as when we lose weight, but it's really going to be protein. And whenever you lose your muscle mass, you're going to see a decrease in your endurance and you're going to see an increase in fatigue. Our muscles are what give us that um, the ability to stand up, to breathe, to swallow. Our muscles are all over our body, and it's not specific on where they're going to take the energy from. It's really going to be from all over. So you're going to feel an impact all over your body. But there are medications to to assist with side effects, just as we heard today. Um, if you're having pain, if you're running into any challenges, talk with your healthcare team as soon as possible. The sooner the better. Um, also, keeping a daily record of what you're eating can be really helpful for your team. Understanding you know, how you're preparing something, is, is there a way to modify that to make it work better for you? Um, if you're tolerating you know, eating and it's just maybe changing up some things because of taste changes or something's irritating you, then this can also be really helpful in the team understanding um, how you're making your meals and things that you're adding to it. Um, if it's greater than that, if you're really having trouble getting enough in each day, your team may talk with you about a feeding tube. Now, a feeding tube can be a short-term or a long-term method of support in meeting your nutritional and fluid needs, but don't shy away from it. Sometimes people get really anxious when um, this becomes a topic of discussion, but understanding the big picture and how important it is for you to get your nutritional needs in um, is what you need to kind of be able to understand is the impact that there's not just one piece to the puzzle. Hydration is also very important. When you're dehydrated, um, you can see an increase in nausea, fatigue, you can feel dizzy, you could be at higher risk for falls. Um, anything that's liquid at room temperature is considered a fluid. So this is water, milk, um, Gatorade, um, you know, those sorts of things. Talk with your team um, to be able to understand, again, how much fluid you need each day. But as a general rule, most people need between 8 and 10 8-ounce glasses 
of fluid per day. And so um, 64 to 80 ounces is pretty much normal for, for the general population. Um, but some treatments can actually cause you to um, need more fluid. It can dry you out, such as radiation. Um, and it depends on the environment and the type of um, air conditioning or heating that you're in. Um, outside in the heat in the summer or in the winter you're inside with the heater, it can also dry you out more. So staying hydrated is very important. Now, if you're struggling with swallowing and or speaking, um, like we heard just a little bit ago, um, a speech pathologist um, will come into the picture. She may come into the picture if there's breathing problems. There's a lot of different um, issues that you might be referred to the speech-language pathologist for. And the important thing to remember is that the speech pathologist can do a number of different things to help support you. And when we're thinking about eating and intake, um, they can um, assess your swallowing process. They can use um, x-ray processes to see if food is pocketing, if you're aspirating. So they can look inside to really see what's happening whenever you're, you're swallowing. From that information, they can um, you know, make recommendations on texture modifications, consistency modifications. They can talk with you about exercises and stretches and things like that, things that are going to help maintain your swallow function and maintain your quality of life because we know eating by mouth is um, the goal for all patients. And so that's what we want to help accomplish um, with patients going um, for, for getting modifications for their diet. But the swallow function, remember, is supported with muscles. So if you're not meeting your nutritional needs, this can impact your swallowing. So even if you're using a tube to meet your nutritional needs, you still want to do the exercises, you still want to do everything that the speech pathologist recommends, and you may be going back to the speech pathologist. Things change, your treatment changes, and your side effects change. So again, keeping in communication with your healthcare team. In closing, as Dr. Day mentioned, there are several members of the healthcare team dedicated to patients undergoing that treatment for head and neck cancers. Know your team and how to reach them. The sooner you reach out, the better. Thank you for allowing me to be part of today's workshop. I'll now pass the line back over to Carolyn. Oh, thank you so much, uh, Ms. Baird, and that was really excellent, really, Diana. That was a fantastic job. And now we do have time for questions, um, and we have a few questions, really, um, and we're just going to take a few of them, and then I will explain to you how to get all your other questions answered. So um, I have a question for Ms. Baird, um, um, and so the question is, my husband has lost his appetite. Is there a way that I can make my husband's favorite foods again so that they are easier to eat? So if you could address that, Ms. Baird. Oh, yes. Okay, so a decreased appetite is common. Um, one of the things that you can, well, there are several things you can try and do. First off, um, interestingly enough, smells can be a turnoff for patients who don't have a very good appetite. And so cold foods hold less odor when, it re when initially presented out of the refrigerator for consumption. So cold foods tend to do better when your appetite is decreased, things like chicken salad, tuna salad, even though those are kind of odorous, when they're cold, they don't have the same odor. Egg salad, even sliced cheese. Um, so trying some things that are cold um, are a great way to kind of bring that in. Cold milk, um, you know, even 
things that you wouldn't think about, like hummus or something that he can tolerate as long as he doesn't have any other side effects with tolerating foods. Um, but your healthcare team meeting with your dietitian, she can definitely specify some recipes um, that can be very helpful if he's having other challenges. Some other things when you have a poor appetite are eating several times throughout the day, and that doesn't mean eating a meal. Um, oftentimes, I'll tell patients, split your meals up into five portions. Um, take a bite, give it 20 minutes. Take a bite, give it 20 minutes. And don't push yourself to sit down and get, finish an entire meal because that feeling of fullness and discomfort can last for quite some time and be a turnoff um, when it comes to eating a meal. Again, they, most patients don't like feeling that way. And the last thing I can think of that would be really helpful is holding fluids, um, drinking about 30 minutes before a meal, then giving yourself about 30 minutes before eating, and then just taking small sips during the meal, and then after about 30 minutes, go ahead and drinking again. Fluid can oftentimes fill us up, and it doesn't have a lot of calories. So when, when your husband's eating, um, focusing on that food. So I hope that's helpful. Those are some things that I've seen work in the past. And actually another question for you, Mr. and there's a lot of questions for you, is what happened to my taste buds after radiation? Everything tastes sour or bland. Will my sense of taste come back? And how can I just, what can I do right now with my sense of taste? Okay, yeah, so taste buds can be affected by chemotherapy. They can be affected by radiation. Remember, our taste buds are also cells, and chemotherapy kills both good cells and bad cells. And it takes a little while for our taste buds to come back, but through both treatments, your taste buds will come back. Um, as far as the taste changes go, there are a few things that can be helpful. Um, citrus foods typically always continue to be tasted by, our, by our, our taste buds. Those taste buds are a little different. They're in a different placement on our tongue. And so um, if you're not uncomfortable eating something that's citrus, and this includes things like marmalade, um, jellies, anything that has a flavor to it, so a fruit, um, a fruit-flavored jelly or preserve, um, you can actually marinate that, um, the meats in that, and you can use it to dip or use it just as a topping, and it will help give the food the flavor, and you'll recognize that flavor. Um, oftentimes, it can be, um, you know, sweet or tart, salty, so you just want to play around with it. But if something's sour, I, I find that always going back to citrus is a good starting point um, can really help you get the satisfaction for the taste of the foods. And this is our last question for you, Ms. Durden. Um, what can I do for dry mouth? I take small sips of water all the time, but I can't seem to feel normal. Do rinses or mints help? Well, it depends. Um, there's, um, there's obviously the, um, I'm not sure if you've been able to try this, but the artificial saliva, some patients find that to be helpful. Um, you have to constantly reapply. Um, moist foods can be um, one of the best ways to address it because if your food is moist, then it doesn't feel so um, challenging to keep your mouth moist. So I tell patients a lot of times, you know, put the extra gravy on something. Um, don't bake, you know, steam, cook in a crock pot. Um, always have your food to be moist because that will make a really big difference in helping your mouth stay moist as well. Um, 
talk with your doctor about acupuncture. There's been conversation about acupuncture and helping with the stimulation of some of the salivary glands um, post-radiation. It might be something that would be... um, be good for you to at least consider and at least have the conversation about um, sucking on candies that some people find that helpful. Um, but yeah, keeping foods moist and this continuing drinking is are some of the things that um, that I would say continue to do. Excellent. Well, thank you. I want to thank um, all of our speakers. They've been phenomenal. I want to thank um, all of you asking these wonderful questions. And I know there are many more questions in queue, so let me actually explain to you how to get your questions answered. Now, your healthcare team, of course, is a wonderful resource for all of you. And so I would definitely certainly recommend you know, accessing your healthcare team. Um, and, but I know many of you like to get information from other sources as well. So we always recommend the National Cancer Institute. Um, their number is 1-800-422-6237. They also have a website, www.cancer.gov, and they have a live chat feature. So for people in the U.S. and internationally, it's a terrific site because you can post your question, and the information specialist will send you all sorts of information that will be incredibly invaluable. And we will also include other resources as well um, in when you get the evaluation, there will be other resources as well. And for those of you who would like to take advantage of Cancer Care Services, of Cancer Care is a national organization. We provide all types of services to people. We provide practical and financial assistance. We also have um, programs like this, of course, we offer. We also offer counseling services, a chance to speak to one of our oncology social workers, both on the telephone or online. And we have online support groups and telephone support groups. So I know many of you would find those programs very helpful, and there is no cost to participate in them. And the online support groups, these workshops are available to people internationally as well. And also, if you post a question on our, go to our website um, at uh, Cancer Care, www.cancercare.org, um, you actually would be able to kind of go to our website, and there's a place where you can ask a question or, or sign up for a support group. Or you can call us, we do, for those of you who'd like to use the phone, you can call our helpline at 1-800-813-4673 so that we are available to help you and also help you to find resources as well. So, um, again, I want to thank you all for your participation today. Um, it's a terrific group, and um, we look forward to being on future programs. And, um, and most importantly, as we conclude, I don't want anyone to think that you're alone. I want you to now know that you're part of this really community of, of, of support, um, on the materials you'll get, you'll be getting all the different resources that we've collaborated with. They're also a wonderful resource for you as well, and any other resources that we want to add that will give you help as well. So again, I thank you all and wish you all a very fine day. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This concludes the workshop, and you may now disconnect. Everyone have a great day.